High Sensory People podcast. I'm Alicia May. I'm a high sensory leader, coach, and creative empath. And I'm Jane Elizabeth Aston. I'm a high sensory leader and spiritual connection coach. We're high sensory people, and we're passionate about raising awareness of the HSP trait and reframing it from being highly sensitive to high sensory and having high sensory intelligence. Did you know that 20 to 30% of the world's population are high sensory? We want to increase our visibility, change how the world sees us, and inspire and empower all HSPs to own their amazing qualities and unique gifts. We would love you to join us on this journey. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. And today we're going to be continuing our discussion about addiction uh, and how we see it applying for high sensory people. So last week we talked about why we wanted to do this episode and we both talked about how we think it's such an important topic. And we also started to talk about our different experiences of it. We see it in quite different ways um, based on our own experiences of it. And we think they provide quite a nice complementary contrast. And um, Alicia told her story of problem drinking um, and how she overcame it. Um, and so this week, I'm going to tell my story. But before I do, I just want to sort of hand over to you, Alicia, so it's not just me talking. That's quite all right, Jane. But yeah, just to reiterate, you know, that there are different types of drinking problems, you know, and mine was sort of, I suppose the word would be acute, where it was, you know, yes, the usual teenager, young person thing, high sensation seeking type thing. But really, you know, after I had um, a very traumatic year in 2012, losing my brother, you know, that really you know, I plummeted into drinking every day without fail for several months um, to get to sleep. And that was because of a trauma in my life. And I couldn't cope because again, you know, I was talking to somebody recently, we're sadly still in a culture that there's no tools. There's no tools, you know, the way we're brought up, we're not brought up with these tools in our culture at the moment to deal with trauma and with grief. And we tend to deal with these things later on in life through, you know, years of therapy, which, you know, I know we've both done. So yeah, today I'm really, really excited to hear your story and for you to talk about um, your challenge with alcohol and why it is different from um, a trauma in adulthood. Um, you know, because I think with, um, with addiction drinking, it something stems, you know, again, it'd be great for people to learn, you know, does it stem, do you start seeing the signs as, as children, as teenagers, you know, um, or is it something that happens in adulthood? It's just, it would be just great to hear, hear your story and get rid of those preconceptions that I think, you know, um, are really, really wrong. Because what I've experienced with people with drinking problems or addictions is, it's a challenge. It's it's not something people wish for themselves. You know, nobody wishes to suffer. <laughs> um, but you know, there is that stigma. I think um, out in in the culture somewhere that um, it's almost as if with addicts, there's this attitude of, well, that's their own fault. They're just being self righteous, self centered. But actually, it's not really about that, is it, Jane? So no. It's like saying you. it's like saying somebody chose to have cancer. 
right or trauma uh, maybe, there's, maybe there's things that we could all do in our lives that mean that we're less likely to get physically ill um but we don't always manage to live perfect lives do we so yes um well where shall I start um so I think of myself as an addict and an alcoholic um and in terms of where it stems from I mean I think this is one of the things which is still very much being debated but to my mind it is two things the first is I do believe that we have to have a genetic predisposition to right. it. Okay. I right. do. Um, because some people can have the most terrible time and yet not become hopelessly addicted to substances. And some people can have environments that really aren't that bad, but yet do become hopelessly addicted to substances or other compulsive behaviours, which are, you know, all kind of the same to my mind. Um, so I think it is partly a genetic predisposition. Um, but as my nutritional therapy um, lecturer used to say, she went, um, but genes and genetics are only part of the picture. If we think about epigenetics, which is um, genes and the combination of the environment, which then changes how those genes are expressed. Yeah. Which ones get switched on, which ones get switched off, which ones, you know, make themselves known. Um, then we can think that uh, it's like a gun. So um, genes load the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. I love that. Okay. I think that's a really helpful way to look at this. So I see myself as a loaded gun with an environment that pulled the trigger. Right. That's what happened. I see my brother as having had the same environment, but his gun was never loaded. Right. He just had to, he has a different genetic predisposition mm -hmm. to me in a lot of ways but I can see back in my family on my dad's side in particular, um, my auntie had a gun that was loaded the same as mine, mm. uh, you know, and, and yeah, and we had a lot of similarities, but anyway, so in terms of, does, are there signs when you're a child? Well, my first addiction was sugar and that was absolutely clear to me by the age of seven, by the age of seven, I, was using sugar to change the way I felt in quite a dramatic way. So I remember being given pocket money and going to the shops and I would always spend all of my money as soon as I got it, which is a very addict, alcoholic thing to do. Um, I would spend, I couldn't save. I would always spend it as soon as I got it. And on one occasion, I went to the shops and I spent, you know, my 20 pence or whatever it was in 1970 seven it would have been 78 I was seven and uh and I, I spent it all on like penny sweets you know like and yeah. I think you could like sometimes get like three for a penny and they were all like you know they're really sugary jelly-y sort of like you know like full of chemicals full of additives in the 70s it was full of e-numbers and I got a bag of those and I got home and I remember sitting on my bed and just like just shoving them into my mouth as quickly as possible. Like I couldn't even taste them, but I just felt some feelings. I felt this frustration at not, I don't even, I can't even tell you. 
I can now, actually. I had feelings and there was no place for them. I had feelings and they were not heard. I had feelings and they were not seen. I had feelings and they were not allowed. I was not allowed to be as I was at all. That was deeply painful and there was nothing I could do with it. So what I did was I bought sweets and I used those to shove the feelings down in me as deeply as I could. So that was the first time I really remember thinking, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I couldn't stop. Mm. So my first drug of choice was sugar. And I've had, you know, disordered uh, relationship with food all through my, you know, childhood, teens, 20s, 30s. Really only in my 40s did that become much more peaceful. Um, you know, I mentioned my nutritional therapy lecturer and actually training to be a nutritional therapist was a big part, you know, in recovery was a big part of me learning wow. how to take care of myself um and take care of myself in a way in nutritionally to to also help regulate my high sensory system so that the feelings that I had were not amplified in a really unhelpful way because of you know blood sugar or whatever so that was that yeah it, you know it's been it's been a long journey for me with with food you know I did have I think what would now be called binge eating disorder there wasn't wow. a name for it when I was really in it in the 1980s, you know, it was it was frightening. So that was my first, you know, that was my first sort of addiction. And it, and it kind of ran through all the others. I picked up alcohol when I was 14. I went to a party. Uh, it's the first time I got let loose with alcohol ever. And that night I drank to blackout the very first time. Um, so can I just can I just interject there? So you'd never had you never drunk alcohol up until you were fourteen. I'd had a couple of I'd been given a couple of little tiny bits by wow. my dad. I remember he gave me a glass of pomaine when I was about eleven, a little tiny glass, like a little thimbleful. I think pomaine was like a sparkling cider. And wow. I remember he gave me and my brother a little tiny tumbler full each. And my brother drank it and went, thanks very much. I drank it. I felt it go down. Uh, a hugely visceral experience. I said, wow, to my dad, can I have another one, please? I would have drunk the whole bottle of that if you'd have let me. Because it, it changed how I felt. And I needed to change how I felt because I felt awful. Yeah. Yeah. Awful. Um, you know, and I think it's a common story for high sensory people where we get a bit squashed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the people around us who don't see us, don't recognise us, or find it deeply uncomfortable to really look at who we are because mm. they don't understand it, or you know, they're just from a different generation. In my parents, you know, case they really, they're really sweet people, but they're from a different generation, and you know, a generation that you know lived through the war, the Second World War, and you just got yeah. on with it. Absolutely, yeah. and it's stiff up a lip, you know, don't yeah. don't share emotions, don't feel your emotions, just you know carry on just isn't it it's that you know we've just got to carry on or yeah. we might die you know yeah. I mean, it's a really good reason we've yeah. got to carry on doing what we're doing in the war or we're all gonna die yeah exactly I mean, it's absolutely fair enough but you know it didn't do me a lot of good um so yeah so I I think that was the only time though and so the, the very first time that I had any 
choice over whether to drink alcohol or not. I had the first one and after that I had no choice. The choice was gone. It was like, I'm going to drink that and I won't know when to stop. I didn't know I wouldn't know when to stop, but what I, well, what I do remember is I don't remember the night. I don't remember after a couple of hours, I blacked out and I gave myself alcohol poisoning and I spent the next two days throwing up, Mm. age 14. Now, that was not enough to stop me doing that a number of times more. And I always drank a bit too much. And by the time I was 18 at university, I realized that if I had drugs as well, then I didn't black out. Or I did black out, but I didn't throw up. So, you know, I added drugs into the mix then. And, I, you know, by then... I'd... It's, logical. it's a logical thing to do, though, isn't it? It makes sense to do that. I'd also, you know, I the 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 sort of the the little, you know, the little traumas that I'd experienced as a child of, you know, the, the terrible trauma of basically having who I really was rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, I then compounded that in my teenage years. Well, that was compounded in my teenage years by being bullied, and then I compounded it by just, you know. I didn't know what to do to rebel enough because I just I just was so desperately uncomfortable. I was trying to change how I felt all the time and the way I did that, the the boys that I liked, you know, the things that I did in my spare time were not helpful and probably caused and did cause more trauma. So, you know, consequently, uh, the more trauma I caused myself, the more I then needed to escape all of it. Yeah. So drugs were perfect. <laughs> they yeah. were perfect. So, you know, I I, I just, uh, I picked up all of the soft drugs, all of the party drugs at university and continued to do those. And so by the time I was um, 21, I was drinking and using drugs every day and had been f- for three years, I suppose. You know, I came out with a good degree, God knows how. Um, but I did. And, you know, and I did a master's, God knows how, but I did. Um, but yeah, it was all absolutely dependent. Everything I did was dependent on me mm-hmm. at some point during the day using drink and drugs just to survive, just yeah, to, to keep yeah. myself going. And, and so it was a solution. But it was a long-term solution and it was an unsustainable solution and it was terrible for my self-esteem and it was terrible for my mental health. Physically, um, I think, you know, stress of being HSP, not in ownership of it, not even knowing about it, it hadn't even been discovered (laughs) at this Mm. point. You know, we're on about like 1992 now, 93, and Elaine Aaron hadn't even written her first book by then. Um, the stress of that was probably the thing that made me physically ill because I was physically ill a lot. Um, but that's basically, that set the pattern for the next sort of 10 years, really. When I realized in my early 20s that it was probably a bit of a problem that I smoked weed every moment of every day that I was not working. From first thing in the morning, I'd like I'd skin up in bed, you know, if I wasn't working. I just and then I'd just be stoned the whole time. And I knew, I knew inside, just like you said last week, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. I could hear it 
as clear as day sometimes. And it was painful to hear it because when I really listened to it, I occasionally would get this like, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop smoking weed. It was weed that felt like the problem. That was the one I would have sold my grandmother for. I mean, I drank every day as well, but not huge volumes, you know, couple of drinks sometimes. If I had weed, I, I didn't need to drink that much, but I had to smoke a lot of weed. Um, and then I had to do party drugs to go out and have fun, you know, fun, the elusive fun. Mm. Fun is when I get really off my head, I thought. It's very different now, the ways I have fun. Yeah. fun. Fun now is about connection. And then it was also about trying to connect desperately, trying to connect right. with yourself, trying to connect with other people, but doing it in the wrong way. I was doing it in the wrong way. I was doing it in the only way I knew how. And I was yeah. doing it in a way that, you know, helped me to function in some ways but it, it just took a terrible toll on me and so you know what what I found was when I did try and stop when I, I like I put all my muster into stopping smoking weed I didn't usually last longer than 48 hours and that 48 hours I wanted to blooming die you know I'd just be like oh god this is so awful this is so painful this is terrible I can't sleep I feel so anxious oh my god I feel as though I'm gonna die this is terrible and also I want to die this is terrible it's like these two things at the same time I feel like I'm dying and I feel like I want to die but I don't want to die but I want to but I don't I mean it just I think what happened really was by the time I realized that I didn't have any choice over these things the the choice had gone many many years back. I read a I read a thing once which I really agreed with a little a little saying and it was, the chains of my addiction were too weak to be felt until they were too strong to be broken. Yeah, and that's my story. Mm. I didn't know that I was addicted until it was too late. Right, so I couldn't stop couldn't stop on my own or maybe I could stop for a short time and when I say a short time I could stop for a couple of days or a couple of weeks or I stopped smoking weed for three months once I stopped drinking for three months once never at the same time I always held on to one or the other um and it was weed that felt like the real problem but then when I stopped drinking I didn't have any hangovers and that was good so in the end you know I just remember thinking, I don't want to live and I don't want to die, but the only way I can live is just by having to smoke weed all the time and knowing that there was stuff I was supposed to be doing in this life. There was, th there was something, I didn't know what it was, didn't know it was, you know, the work that we're doing around high sensory people and helping HSPs, you know, come into awareness and ownership. And, you know, and, and unearthing the gift, I didn't know that that was what I was supposed to be doing. And I was a long way from finding that out. But I knew there was something I was supposed to be doing. And it was not sitting in a flat on my own smoking weed all weekend, you know, and occasionally making it out to meet my friends or do social things because I did still always function. Did, um, did you ever feel that there was something more for you? In, in in this these sort of moments did you because you just mentioned about I feel like I'm supposed to be doing something but did you was there also on top of that a sense of 
there's more of me there's more there's something more for me there's I don't know. I mean, I suppose somewhere I must have done because I because I, I knew there was something like this is not how my life is supposed to be. Right. It wasn't supposed to be like this. I had no idea how it was supposed to be. And I had no idea how I was going to get from where I was to what the amorphous place I was supposed to be going to. But I, I'd lost myself so completely. I had so little sense of who I Mm. really am that I didn't have a lot of clues mm-hmm. um you know and in the end just by a series of coincidences really I found myself going to a 12-step fellowship um yeah know. what was that what was that breaking point what was that what was that experience that light bulb moment of right I need to do I need to go to an AA because I I dated somebody once that when I mentioned an AA AA, they completely freaked out. Whereas everything you've told me about A, I'm like, can I sign up? I'm like, it sounds good. Well, you know, people have this. It's it's, oh no, I'm not going to AA. Sort of, I guess they're not ready to admit the truth to themselves. Maybe, and and I, I, I've got to be really careful about not naming any particular fellowships because of the um, the twelve traditions. So I don't identify myself as going to any particular fellowship but what I will say is that I've been to a few and they all work the same basic 12-step program there's ones for drink there's ones for drugs there's ones for food there's ones for money there's one for relationships there's ones for gambling there's ones for sex there's ones for this that and the other I mean they're all sorts and they're all amazing and I've tried quite a few of them and they're all incredible Um, but what happened was I was at another one of my rock bottoms uh, and this was in 2002. So I'd always lived with people, friends, family, boyfriends, whatever. And I'd finally um, got this flat. Mm-hmm. That I'm still, you know, that I'm now living in again, sort of 20 odd years later. I was about to say, by the grace of God. I mean, literally, by the grace of God, I've still got this flat, you know, like, thank God. <laughs> thank God, literally. And um and I, I was finally living on my own, thinking, great, I'll be able to drink and drink as much as I want and use as many drugs as I want and smoke as much weed as I want. And nobody can stop me and nobody can get in my way and everybody can just get out of my face. Mm. And within a year of that, <laughs> within about eight months of that, of that freedom, I was so miserable. I was so broken by my own behavior. Right. Um, I I just remember thinking, I can't do this. The only life is just going to be this awful, interminable day after day, having to take drugs, having to drink, just having to. And I'm so tired and it's so hard and it's so awful. And um, and and I saw an article in um, the Guardian newspaper about a woman who seemed to use drink and drugs like I did. And she was talking about one of the 12-step fellowships that she went to and how it had really changed things for her. And it was the first time I'd ever read a story about somebody who was seemingly just like me, like a complete inability to stop. Mm -hmm. She had stopped by doing, by going to these meetings and doing these, following these suggestions that people had told her about. And I just thought, I'll give it a go then. And so I did. And that was the beginning of um, four years of sobriety. 
through going to 12 step fellowships, getting a sponsor, working through the 12 steps. I sponsored people. I did what we call service, which is basically just helping to run the meetings. You know, the meetings are not run by anyone in charge. We're just all the same. We're just one, you know, one addict, alcoholic, you know, like codependent debtor, whatever we are, food addict, one of those helping others, Mm -hmm. just people who are not quite as far along as we have been. And we help them along, you know, as people helped us. So I started doing that and I um, and I got four years and in many ways they were the best four years I'd had. But in other ways, I felt like I must be doing something wrong because I was so tired all the time. Yeah, because at this point, you didn't know that you were HSP, did you? Which is really important. Yeah. Really important. So I had a piece that was missing. Mm, Yeah. I had a piece that was missing because I would go to meetings and I would think, I relate to a lot of what people are saying, but some of what people are saying I don't relate to. And the differences now that I can see were because they were not HSP. They had a different experience with their using as a result, their drinking and using, and they also were having a different experience of recovery than me. And I, if I tried to do my recovery like they did, in a very sociable, full-on way, oh, you know, rah, 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 I got exhausted and overwhelmed. And and when I sort of said, you know, like, I just need to go home, I, I would be sort of told, well, you know, don't isolate. Don't isolate. Don't just stay in your head. You know, that's dangerous for us. You know, you'll end up picking up. That's not what you were doing. I was trying to look after myself, but I didn't know. And it made me feel wrong. And it made me feel like I couldn't tell anyone. And it it kept my world really grey, really grey. And so in the end, it was one of the factors. One of the factors was I thought I could probably have a drink. As long as I don't, as long as I don't use drugs, I'll probably be all right with alcohol. And then the other one was, I'm not like these people anyway because they're telling me stuff that right. doesn't me. Right. So after four and a bit years, I thought I'll have a drink. I was also going out with a guy who drank a lot. That was in the mix too. Yeah. That made alcohol seem very attractive. Yeah. Yeah. I had no business going out with him really, but. I should have gone out. Yeah, should have gone out with him years ago when we were at university, and we were never. We just never. We missed our chance then, and yeah. you know that was one of my one of my many destructive choices to miss that chance. Anyway, so I picked up a drink, and what happened was very much like what happened when I was fourteen at that party. I had one, and I just wanted more. Couldn't stop all over again. You know, it was it was twenty five years later, and it was the same. It was the same. Uh, it was 20 years later and it was the same, whatever. Right. So, and then after about six weeks, I thought, I don't actually want to just drink. What I really want is to smoke weed. So then I picked that up again. And then, you know, and then I, you know, if I was like, oh, some ecstasy. Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, some, oh, you wow, know. Like, everything. Oh, God. Yeah, whatever. By now, there were legal highs. So I enact a load of those as well. You know, speed, coke, whatever. Bring it on. I'll have it. Mushrooms, acid. Yes, please. Um, so now I'm holding down a much more responsible job doing all this stuff in the evenings and weekends and, you know, and feeling increasing. To start off with, it was fun. And then increasingly, I felt broken. And still that voice in my head going, you're not supposed to be doing this. Mm. 
you're not supposed to be doing this and you know you learned in recovery you're powerless over this stuff you can't stop look at you you can't stop oh it was so painful in the end when that you're not supposed to be doing this voices they got really loud to the point that I really really didn't want to be here anymore I really seriously thought that not being here would be easier because I was in a great deal of pain emotionally and spiritually. You know, my work was going okay. In fact, it was going quite well. I'd never earned more. I'd got a shiny new car. I'd, you know, things were, you know, I looked great. My God, I was really thin. Like, I don't know if that looked great or not. I thought it looked great. Um, but inside I was like a shell. I mean, there was nothing there. I was brittle. There was no substance um it was frightening it was frightening and so in the end and it was another one of those series of coincidences I do believe it's like you said when you've mentioned AA to people and they've gone oh my god no I'm not that bad yeah and and I remember watching the Amy Whitehouse documentary and she had a few windows in her life when she was ready to go into recovery when she was really going to give it a go and I think the last couple, she was not able to do that because somebody, you know, like her dad or, you know, whoever stopped her and went, you've got to go on tour. You don't need that. You've got to go on tour. And, um, you know, I was fortunate in that when I was really desperate and when I was really ready, I got a few little signs that got me back to a meeting. I was so fortunate to get back. Yeah. Uh, and that was in 2009, September the 20th. It's a really cool day, actually. It's 20, uh, t- 2009, 2009. Yeah, that's cool. cool. That, yeah, 2009, 20, yeah, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's a good day. Um, I, I often say my sobriety date is, in fact, I do say my sobriety date is the 21st of September 2009, just because I had half a sleeping pill that night. Yeah, and I've just realised, isn't that 11-11 as well, if you add them up? Probably. Special. Yeah, I'm pretty young. Enough, enough on, yeah. <laughs> it's all higher power. There's no... Absolutely. And that's, I mean, you know, that's the other thing for me. Um, I had... I had become so powerless over these substances, so completely powerless. There was nothing I could do. I had no defence against them. They'd be there. And oh. even if I didn't want to do them, I'd be just like, oh, fuck it, give it here. Life's so, too painful. So and it and it really is an all or nothing. Like that's what I'm getting from you with with all or nothing. With, yeah, it's all in or it's all out. You can't go in between. I can't do half measures now. With food, I am very lucky. I'm very lucky because I thought for a while that I might have to be all or nothing with food. And with food, you can't be all or nothing. But there are ways of keeping food extremely boundaried in fellowships which involve you know like lists and weighing and measuring and planning and not going right. and it's you know it it really 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 works for some people but I was always quite resistant to it I was like I don't want to do that and you know what as yet I don't have to because for me food was a great way of numbing my feelings that weren't allowed to be heard and as I've gone on in recovery and you know as I've learned to look after myself and once I discovered I was high sensory which I did when I was a year and a bit into recovery this time 
it gave me a way to make sense of my experience, to let my feelings out in safe ways to safe people. And in doing that, the need to squash all my feelings down by overeating or, you know, like just binging on sugar or something, it, it disappeared. Yeah. So would you say you were finally able to really express yourself after all these years? Just everything just clicked into place with knowing you were HSP. It was like, right, I can be me now because I understand myself on a level that I have never been able to. I think it was the start. Right. Okay. It was the start. I mean, I don't know about you, Alicia, but I'm still learning how to stay in my authenticity. I've never been better at it than I am now mm-hmm. you know it's an absolute joy um you know and because we've got you know our high sensory friends we've got our high sensory tribe we've got you know we've got the work that we're doing and it's so wonderful and magical we're creating more and more places to have these conversations and to really own who yeah. we are w- why it's important what we need and why that's important. Mm. Um, and so in doing that, you know, food is one of the areas that I've been able to largely heal. Um, in terms of drink and drugs, my body has developed a particular, almost allergic react- reaction to those substances. And that will, I believe, never change. I haven't had a drink for 14 years. I haven't smoked weed for 14 years. But if I had a sip of wine now, I believe fully that it would be game over and I would want another and another and another. There's no such thing as moderation with me for those things. And I know because, you know, I've, you know, I've spent time with you that for you, you can take or leave alcohol. You can have an occasional glass of wine, you know, a couple of times a month or whatever you want or not even that often. It doesn't matter. It's neutral to you and it will never be neutral for me ever. Yeah, that's really interesting because you've just reminded me of an experience I had recently where I was house sitting for somebody and cat sitting and they said to me, help yourself to the the gin and tonic because they're gin and tonic drinkers. Mm. And seriously, they must have 50 bottles of different types of gin and they said help yourself but don't drink at all and I remember the first night it was a really weird experience where there was this temptation of yeah let's just do a bender let's just drink a shit ton of alcohol like fuck it let's just have we when have I let I haven't let my hair down in a long time let's just do it and I and and there was that voice of like no Alicia we don't do that anymore like no just because it's there on tap doesn't mean we need to do anything with it. And by the next day, that urge had gone. So, um, no, it's it's really interesting. So, amazing stuff, Jane. Your story is just amazing. And I, I think, I just think people that haven't drunk or taken any substances for so many years, well, whether it's six months, whether it's six years, 16, doesn't matter. It's still like what incredible strength these people have and what you have to just know yourself know your limits and know and just just to honor those and to just I just think it's incredible strength incredible strength 
Thank you so much. I mean, it's a, it's paradoxical, though. Mm. Recovery is completely paradoxical because I am very strong-willed yes. and courageous in other areas of my life. But when it came to drink and drugs in particular and other things that I've been really powerless over, dysfunctional relationships, yeah. you know, over sort of, you know, really terrible, <laughs> terrible with money, pretty powerless over those things. Mm. Um but I think, you know, the fact that I managed to get two degrees, hold down a job, never get fired, always do quite well, always be reasonably popular shows that I'm pretty strong willed in terms of making my life function, even though I've got this body that's allergic, basically, to drugs and alcohol and makes me just want to I mean, suck them all in like I'm a black hole. Um, I have very little willpower when it comes to drinking drugs. Me on my own, I can't do it. But what I can do is with a group of like minded people. And we work a spiritual program. It's not a religious program. It's a spiritual program. And we call on the help of power greater than us, which could be the group. It could be God. It could be the divine universal force and flow of love. It could right. be like the force in Star Wars. It could be like yeah. the sea. There was one guy I knew in recovery, and when he got sober, he didn't know what his higher power was. There's a, often this sort of debate around like when people are first in, I don't know what my higher power is. I'm like trying to work out what my higher power is. Well, this guy, he got a rubber glove like a marigold. He blew it up, tied a knot in it, drew a face on it, and put it on the wall, and that was his higher power. And he <laughs> used to pray to that glove every morning, please give me a sober day. And, uh, and in the end... Thanks. In the end, he got enough faith that something was helping him right. by the fact that he had not had a drink for, you know, six months or something like unbelievable for him. Uh, and six months was unbelievable for me as well. Three months was like, six months was incredible. Like I like to not use drink or drugs for six months. Right. I mean, I'm almost more awed about that than I am about 14 years because after 14 years, you're just doing the same again. But those right. that first year sure. is, is that first year is hard. Um, yeah, you have to learn to do everything differently: parties, weddings, Christmas, mm. birthdays, funerals, promotions, leaving work. Joy, I mean, everything sober. Yeah. And, and you're training that muscle that's very weak, so to speak. Yeah. And aren't you? You're you're really having to like yeah, the muscle of acceptance. Yeah, of acceptance of what is yeah. of life on life's terms. And yeah. you know, and the only way I've really been able to do that is to really trust and have some faith that there is something bigger than me yeah. that's um, that's helping me, that's guiding me, and the more. I trust that the more magical my life becomes. And, you know, I find myself saying quite a lot at the moment because let's, I think it's fair to say, Alicia, that our lives are getting quite exciting. Oh, yes. I feel like our lives are getting quite exciting. Oh. More on that, listeners, will unfold over the coming weeks and months. But yeah. our lives are getting quite exciting. And um, and it can get a little bit scary sometimes, a bit overwhelming. And I'm like, I don't know how this is going to work. And then because I'm in a 12-step program, because I've got something bigger than me that's yeah. kept me away from a drink and a drug and unhealthy behaviors you know for years for many years I like to remind myself what if I really trust God what if I really trust that you know like the divine universal force and flow of love has got this yeah 
I just need to be in the passenger seat. Mm. Oh, yeah. God's in the driving seat and I'm just along for the ride, you know, and I'll just say helpful things along the way. And uh, and that, you know, is, is, is a huge help to mm. me. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, so that's quite a long story. I've gone on for ages and I'm wondering, that's... do we need to do an addiction part three to finish this off? Well, I, I was just thinking that because obviously we were going to talk about um, – how addiction and compulsion can look, what it can look like for HSPs. Um, is it different to how it looks for non-HSPs? And I think that is a bit of a conversation on its own, isn't it? I so, do. I think, yeah. you know, yeah. And our stories are, you know, so different and contrasting. And so I think it's really nice to have introduced it and had you tell your story last week. And, you know, my story, in all honesty, it is longer. <laughs> it's quite yeah, a lot longer. It went on for it's a way longer. Yeah. It spans 20 years. Exactly. You know, it goes from, well, it spans my whole life, but even the portion when I first went into recovery to now is 21 years. Yeah. It took me 21 years to get seven years. No, it took me 21 years to get 14 years mm. so, uh, sober. So, yeah, I think maybe we'll come back and we'll we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll finish this next week. That works. Yeah. And then, and then we'll just sort of, yeah, recommend places for people to go for any help and support and, um, yeah, we'll do that next time. Fabulous. I'd like to set those out. I really yeah. would because, you know, I think it's we've fine. both tried things over the years, which has helped or been helpful, mm. even if it didn't provide the solution. Yeah. Certainly other things that I've done alongside my 12-step recovery that I would recommend as well. Absolutely. No, fantastic. Thank you for sharing your story, Jane. It's been really, really great to, to listen to it. And I, I'm sure and I hope that um, a lot of listeners have, have got a lot out of it because it really it really isn't an easy experience. It's not, you know, it's not a walk in the park at all. So, not um, a walk in the park, but a privilege to be on the other side now and to be able to share my experience, strength and hope and hopefully help yeah. other people by doing that. So, um, so yes, we're going to wrap up for today. And again, a shout out or a mention of the High Sensory Tribe. Our online community is live and kicking. Uh, do you remember that show? <laughs> live and kicking. And um, years and yeah, years and years ago. Uh, I think he started it and it was Zoe Ball and then it went to Jamie Theakston, I think. Oh, Jamie. Yeah. Something like oh. that. Yeah. And um, sorry, that's now live. It's via the um, Mighty, digressing, Mighty Networks. Uh, High Sensory Tribe, not live and kicking. Live yeah, and sorry. Kicking. Yeah. High Sensory Tribe is live. Yeah. <laughs> On the Mighty Networks uh, platform. Um, so we'll pop some link. Uh, we'll pop the link in the show notes and that will take you straight to the joining page. And uh, we hope to see you there. We do. Yes, absolutely. It's free for the first month, so you can give it a try and stay if you like it. Fantastic. So thank you again for joining us today. We really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments. And please do subscribe, share and review our podcast. Join us for next week's episode when we will be finishing our three-part series about addiction. Bye for now. Bye for now.